0: Welcome to the Andy Social Podcast. My name is Andy Dowling, bass player for the Australian metal band Lord. If you love a bit of old school heavy metal, you want to give us a crack, you can go to lord.net.au. We'll have all of our music over there and all of our social media page links there also, lord.net.au. In addition to playing in a band, I also host a second podcast because one is clearly not enough. If you're into small business, self-employment or freelancing, you can go to selfstarter.com.au or you can search for selfstarter on your preferred podcast player. Um, there's heaps of stuff over there with regard to the self-employment world. And a massive thank you to the anti-social faithful that have jumped over there and have been supporting me in the first few months of that uh, podcast and website being up and running and really, really pumped and excited about what's happening with it and where it's going. So a massive, massive thank you to everybody. Speaking of thank yous, and actually before I get to this week's shout outs, for anybody that's listening to this podcast for the first time ever, thank you and welcome For 2018, I gave myself a whole range of different goals, but one of the goals was for every single episode of 2018, I'm going to be doing a shout out, a thank you to somebody that supports this podcast in a whole range of different ways. It could be leaving a review on Facebook or on Apple Podcasts. It could be somewhere else on the internet. And by the way, if you do leave a review somewhere else on the internet, please let me know because I don't always see them um, and I can't keep up with all this stuff on the internet. So please send me a screenshot of your review if you want me to know about it. Um, It could be liking, it could be retweeting, it could be love hearting, it could be all that social media stuff. It could just be a direct message to me with some words of encouragement. Anything that fuels my fire, supports the podcast, supports the band, supports me, it means a hell of a lot to me. And the least I could do is start giving back by... Having a little thank you each and every episode of 2018, and uh, I'll also plug anything that you guys are involved with, and I'll, I'll send something out in the post. So if you do get a shout out, please send me a message, and I will find something laying around my house, and uh, and I'll post it out to you because we always love getting some, something in the post. So this week's shout out is Mick Goddard, an old friend of me, the podcast, the band. Uh, Mick Goddard's been on the podcast before, episode 36, for all of you long. Term listeners. Uh, Mick's an amazing guy. He supports everything that I'm involved with like in extreme levels. He owns pretty much everything we've ever released, and he's just an amazing, amazing person. And uh, for anybody that hasn't listened to episode 36, uh, Mick's got a really amazing story uh, about his son, Kai, and the challenges that he's had since birth with heart defects and ongoing issues with his heart and his lungs. And... I was going to thank Mick in an upcoming episode of the podcast, but I thought this was a really good episode to to link in because in episode 36, Mick Mick talks about an ECMO machine that Kai had to use at one point. And I'm not going to attempt to really explain what an ECMO machine is because we get into it in this episode and this will be the third time that an ECMO machine has been spoken about on the Anti social podcast. I never would have thought that, but long story short, and in a very dumb way of explaining it, an ECMO machine keeps you alive. It does things, but it keeps you alive in critical moments. And the first time it was mentioned was in episode 35, I believe, with Sinclair Nui, who had the double lung transplant. Double lung transplant. I'll spit that out. You can uh, check out that story. That's a really, really good episode. The second time was with Mick talking about his son, Kai, on episode 36. And the third time is this episode, which I'll get to shortly. So I thought it was a really cool episode to link it all in together. Um, and, um, just Mick's got a great story and I really encourage you guys to go back and have a listen to it. If you want to support Mick with his photography, he's an amazing photographer, especially in the world of music, does a lot of live, uh, music photography. You can go and search for Mick G photography, but also, and, um, I think this is a great time to bring it up as well. Uh, last year was a, co- there was a compilation CD that was released in uh, tribute for Mick's son, Kai, to support Kai and his ongoing challenges with uh, his lungs and his heart and the ongoing medical costs that the Goddard family have to endure, unfortunately. And uh, it's a CD called Kingdom of Kai. And it features about 10 or 12 Australian metal bands, and they've all had a relationship with the Goddard, Goddard fa- family, goddard family come on andy one way or the other so there's us there's vanishing point there's Dark half silent night night legion tabra uh, mason espionage there's a couple of others as well so my apologies for those guys i missed there um, but you can still grab a cd it's over at kingdomofkai.com bigcartel.com. And uh, all money raised from the CD sales go straight to the Goddard family to help them with their ongoing medical costs. And um, for anybody that's had any experience with uh, any form of medical costs, we know that it's not uh, a small amount of money. So any support that we can give back to the Goddard family who do a lot for Australian music, but a lot for their local community as well. I think that's a great way of doing it. Plus, any of you uh, old-school metalheads that love a CD in their collection, this is a great collectible that won't be around for a long period of time. So a great uh, little souvenir to add to your collection there. kingdomofkai.bigcartel.com Thanks, Mick. Really appreciate the support. Now, this week's guest... We're here. Let's do it. This week's guest is with Cliff Reed. Cliff Reed is a doctor, a specialist. He works in emergency and intensive care. Uh, He also works in pre, let me get this right, pre-hospital retrieval emergency medicine. He does a lot of stuff. Um, And I caught up with Cliff out at the brand new uh, pre-hospital retrieval emergency medicine base. That is a collaboration with Toll, um, and uh, they've got their helicopter base out there. There's also fixed-wing aircraft, and they've got their road uh, crew out there as well. And it's been up and running for about 12 months. It's a multi-million dollar facility. I've put a couple of photos in the show notes for this episode over at andysocial.net, so make sure you go and check that out. But I was so impressed. I was incredibly impressed, and I tried to keep... I try to keep a lot of that in because I just didn't want to sound like a blubbering fool, which I think I was. But I was just blown away by this place. It was an amazing facility. Not only does it provide emergency response, uh, an emergency response service for uh, the whole state of New South Wales, but it's also an amazing training facility that helps um, keep um, medics up to speed with emergency situations. And they've also got like a whole range of different uh, sort of role play scenario um, simulators and things that they've got on site there. But one thing that's so cool over there, and Cliff makes a mention in this episode, is this wave simulator. It's this pool with a wave simulation, and there's this helicopter um, sort of fuselage or whatever that is dunked into the water with the crew in it, and they have to get out of the helicopter in this in these treacherous conditions that have been simulated. And it's to prepare people in the unlikely event that the helicopter f- literally falls out of the sky into the ocean. And it's something that has to happen every every so often to keep the guys on their toes and, ke- and make sure that they are prepared if this ever occurs. But I'm um, so impressed with that. I'm so impressed with everything at this place. I'm so impressed with Cliff. I'm just impressed. How much more impressed can I get? I'm going to let Cliff do all the explaining. Um, actually, before I we dive into this episode, I'm going to make more of a focus in the uh, episodes on the Antisocial Podcast to come where I highlight more people in our emergency services or any services that help us in the general public. I think it's very cliched. It gets said often, but not often enough, but these guys are the real superheroes. These are the people that we should idolize. Um, There's no there's no issue with idolizing people in the entertainment world as I completely understand it and I get it and I do it myself. But I think there's a lot of people out there that do amazing things on a day-to-day basis for us. They keep us safe. They look after us when we need it. They educate us. They do so much for us. And I think it's probably my duty to highlight a few more of these people because they are incredible people. And Cliff is certainly an amazing example of this. So enough gushing from me. Please enjoy this episode with emergency clinical care, pre-hospital retrieval medical doctor specialist, Cliff Reed. Cliff, thank you very much for inviting me to this um, pretty impressive facility. Uh, Do you want to just give me a quick rundown of who you are and where we are, but um, also all the acronyms that are against your name? If you go to your Twitter page, I went, oh, EM, ICM, PHEM. There's quite a few.
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, thanks for inviting me uh, to have a chat with you today. Like I said, you're the first rock star I've ever met, so uh, I'm <laughs> quite excited. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm in, I'm a doctor. Uh, I'm a specialist, and the things I'm involved in are emergency medicine, intensive care medicine, and pre-hospital emergency medicine, or it's also called pre-hospital and retrieval medicine. So, the way they all fit together is essentially, I look after really sick patients who are either very ill or very severely injured. And I look after them in the hospital
0: and also out of the hospital as well. So you're dating between here and one particular hospital or, or a number of different hospitals in the Sydney area? Yeah, more
1: than one hospital. Yeah. So I work in the emergency department on the northern beaches and in North Sydney. And uh, I also work out in western New South Wales in intensive care. And here today, we're at Bankstown Airport, which is where we do the pre-hospital and retrieval medicine. And we'll respond to patients in need all over the state in helicopters or Mm. fixed wing aircraft or road ambulances. And that's part of a mainly a doctor paramedic team. Although when we fly out in an airplane, it's a doctor nurse team.
0: Okay. And we just did a quick walk around here. It's really impressive. And we had a look at um, one of the helicopters as well. Um, obviously costs a couple of dollars so it's a lot of money that's been pumped into the facility but also what's here they're brand new helicopters by the looks of it.
1: Yeah that's right so um, the clinical staff are provided by New South Wales Ambulance and the uh, machines the helicopters are provided by Toll who have also provided the base and this is a Multi million dollar facility essentially paid for by the taxpayer. So, we're here to serve the people of New South Wales mm. and either rescue them from a terrible incident outside the hospital, uh, which might be a, a bad road car accident, or someone trapped in the ocean who needs to be winched out, or someone injured at the bottom of a canyon. But also, traveling to other hospitals to bring patients back to Sydney that might have specialist care needs. Mm. Uh, so it's certainly never boring. We've got this mixture of critical illness and injury covering a large uh, surface area of land
0: dealing with New South Wales' sickest and most injured patients. And you mentioned there's, there are some other bases around the state, but for the most part, this is servicing the entire state of New South Wales yes. with some assistance.
1: That's right certainly when we fly by fixed wing we're covering the whole state there are regional helicopter bases that will cover their their parts of the state, so there are other helicopters in newcastle tamworth there's more Wollongong orange um, who will do a very similar
0: job to us and uh, they're all great colleagues given given the population of the state itself, no doubt this would be a busy a busy hub there'd be there'd be always something on the go it is we um
1: we are responding to a large number of jobs. I think it's between three and 4,000 cases per year from this right. base. Well, wow. Although we have a number of teams on at any one time. So right now, in the middle of the day, we've got two doctor paramedic road teams on base, two doctor paramedic helicopter teams on base, a senior doctor on call to assist as well. Um, and then our... Uh, Affiliated bases, Wollongong and Orange, also have a doctor paramedic team 24 hours a day. So although we'll see thousands of cases between us per year, an individual shift might not see more than one, two or three patients, Hmm. which in a way is a luxury. If I compare that to my work in hospital in the emergency department, where I've got a whole building full of patients to deal with, sometimes it's nice to be able to just focus all of your attention on one very sick patient at a time but the, uh, the also also the other thing about um, having a shift where you might only see two or three patients is that there's significant downtime between missions mm. and what I love about this job is the way that we'll get together and utilize that time constructively so we have an opportunity to to train and rehearse for those difficult cases um, for when you know things are really hitting the fan um, we want to be mission ready to be able to do things really effectively and really quickly when it counts so we'll we'll do a lot of simulation training
0: on base and so you're the director of training at this base
1: that's right yeah and i'm i'm a a cog in a machine in that there yeah. are a lot of other people in our training team
0: yeah. and i help coordinate their activities we, we went for a quick walk around some of the training rooms here and we walked into one of them and almost shut myself because there was a dummy sitting there in the in the bed as a simulated emergency room i would assume that's
1: right yeah Yeah. so as
0: i said we work outside the hospital and inside hospitals so we need to prepare
1: for both and the best way to prepare for anything in life is to simulate it Mm. put yourself under pressure Um, And so we will do that. We'll try and make things as realistic as possible. And uh, as you mentioned, we've got a lot of mannequins, a lot of training dummies. But where possible, we'll also use human actors to behave like patients, because there's no substitute for having someone screaming and bleeding in front of you to really up that pressure to perform and increase your own stress response, because that's the best way to train someone how to
0: deal with that stress. Uh, Are people jumping at that opportunity to be the live the live actor or is it more the shortest straw that picks someone? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, more the latter I think it's usually
1: someone from our training team Yeah. although we've been very lucky over the last few years when we run our twice yearly induction course where we have all our new doctors and paramedics come and train yep. uh, to be mission ready we've had a lot of paramedics and paramedic students um, come along who don't work here but they come along and help us with the training hmm. they get the benefit of being part of this system and and seeing what training we're delivering and and they definitely learn from that. But we get um, a much bigger benefit in that we've got this great cohort of unpaid volunteers who are enthusiastic and who are medical themselves so they know how a screaming, bleeding patient behaves and appears. So we have them being the actors usually and some of them have been coming back year after year and are getting really really convincing <laughs>
0: at dying got a bit of experience under their belt now that's right i was almost going to put my hand up and say oh if you ever want a screaming person i'll, I'll give it a shot but i think um i think it might take me a few goes to make a convincing a convincing actor of uh, yeah someone that's uh, in distress yeah <laughs> yeah it's hard to make it look realistic unless you're either a good actor or you've really had that illness or injury i think i'd just make everyone laugh which would not be the point <laughs> of the exercise altogether um, so, there's, there's heaps of things I, I was, that I wanted to ask you about today. And I think maybe just to give it a bit of structure, just to go back a little bit. Um, what was the motivator for you to even look at the medical world as a career pathway for you? What, I mean, obviously, I, I would assume that there's the want to be able to help people in need, um, but there's a lot of responsibility. And I no doubt a lot of stress. And over time, you you as you mature and you get experience, you learn as you go, and you be able to ha- you're able to manage that and handle that a lot better. But what was the initial driver for you to go? You know what? This is a pathway, or this is a this is a road that I want to walk down.
1: Yeah, if I remember back as far as I can, as a schoolboy, I was very interested in science. Um, more science fiction than science, to be honest. And my initial plan A for a career choice was to be a time traveller. And when that was Failed. discouraged um, and I realised it wouldn't be possible, I was looking at alternatives and something that brought together the application of scientific knowledge with actually contributing and helping other people. Um, I think I probably was inspired by some medical TV shows when I was you know, working for my exams at the age of, sort of 16, 17, 18, and um, But I also remember being discouraged from medicine as well by a lot of teachers uh, just based on my predicted grades. Um, so I, I grew up in the UK and our, our, um, our exams that you take in your last year of school were called A-levels and your predicted grades that got you a university offer were based on how well you did after your first year of studying for A-levels over the two years. And I didn't really study... That hard. Um, I kind of felt that I would do okay in the final exam, so I didn't really work that hard for mm. the for the first year exams. And so my predicted grades were not good enough to get into medicine. Right. And there were, I was essentially told, you can't apply to medicine. The, these grades, we, we, we're not going to give you good enough predicted grades. But these predicted grades were just plucked um, out of the sky by a, by a teacher based mm. on how they thought you would do. And I had well, my German teacher was the teacher that believed in me and she, she was able to influence what went on my application form for university. And so she's, she's like the one individual that said, yeah, I think you'll be a good doctor. Um, I'm going to see what I can do to, to help you get into medical school.
0: So without that person, potentially your life tra- trajectory would have gone in a completely different, yeah. different way. I know, it's really interesting to reflect
1: on that, yeah. all these uh, parallel universes where yeah. I might be in different careers. Mm. So, and then I guess what drew me to emergency medicine was just being um, inspired by the idea that you could save someone's life um, and prevent a person from being taken away from their family. So in my first year at medical school, my dad died of a heart attack. He was only 57. Um, And I remember getting the news from a policeman uh, knocking on my door when I, early one morning in my university accommodation, saying, um, "You know, sorry to tell you, your dad's died. You, you're going to need to go and hmm. be with your mum." And uh, I said, "Okay, thanks for telling me." And just as he was leaving, I remembered that my mum and dad had retired that week <sighs> and had moved to a completely different county. Um, and hadn't yet told me where they lived. Oh so no! <laughs> I had to then tell the police, "I don't actually know where my mum lives."
0: <laughs> <laughs> as bad as that sounds, yeah, isn't? there's a reason behind it, but yeah. I know. <laughs> I so know. Uh,
1: it went, "Oh yeah, sorry." They, they told me to give you this address and gave me this little piece of paper. Oh. Uh, obviously, I still remember that day very clearly. Um, so I had, you know, I had a loved one ripped away from me at an early age. At a, I guess, a, a time when I was, um, was thinking about what kind of doctor I was going to be. Hmm. And I'm sure that was a major influence in in choosing emergency medicine.
0: Yeah, I, um, I guess just from my own experiences through life and friends of mine, and I think we all sort of have our insular little circles of people that have similar interests. And we we form biases as well. And I've just um a lot of people that I've been around for for years have um have never sort of, had that extreme level of responsibility. I think we've all got responsibility in our day-to-day lives of being a a good son or daughter or husband, a family member or a work colleague and, and, you know, a careful driver on the road and things like that, but um, to work in an environment where there is a lot of pressure and you could be the difference between whether somebody remains here or doesn't um, is just... For me, it's it's such an extreme scenario to be in, so it's fascinating just to hear how how somebody starts to think along those lines to go. This is a path that I want to take. I want to take on that that responsibility.
1: Yeah, and I. But I think it comes from seeing situations where the right thing wasn't done, or yeah, you know, just experiencing um, or witnessing. Preventable deterioration or death in patients and thinking i can't let that happen again or when i'm in a position to influence this i won't let that happen um there is you know there's so much more we can do that sometimes isn't done uh, i think that's what drives me but you're right there is a pressure i mean um for example you know medical knowledge is increasing and improving all the time and uh, Every month, there'll be literally hundreds of medical journals printed that have new research in, some of which um, could contain a little nugget of information that Mm. might make a difference to a patient. But it literally takes years for that information to translate into actual change in clinical practice because doctors don't have time to read all the journals and so someone's got to read it and tell someone else or do some more research and prove that that is the way to go and then publish that research and someone will look at the cumulative research and publish a systematic review of that and then that might make it into a more commonly read medical periodical and someone will read that and tell their mates and then finally it makes its way into clinical practice mm. um, but i'm too impatient for that process <laughs> so i will um, I will review a lot of these journals every month and I've got to find time for that. And so there's always this little nagging pressure is what am I missing? What else could I be doing? Is there, is there something new um, uh, to be applying to patients? So it, you're right, it's not easy when you have that responsibility. You know, if I've got someone in the resuscitation room lying there in fear for their life and I'm their doctor, they're trusting me To give them the best possible medical treatment Uh, and I can't betray that trust that's a massive responsibility now sometimes you might let them down or you know a doctor might let them down because they don't have the most most up-to-date medical knowledge Uh, I don't want to be that that guy sometimes they might let them down they might be the best doctor in the world but they're not in in a system that allows for the best care to be delivered and there are examples of that all the way all around the world we're really lucky in uh in australia and you know especially in sydney to have first world health care and great resources so yeah it's rarely the case that i see the system truly letting a patient down i mean the system prevents patients from getting great care sometimes but it doesn't kill patients mm. as, as far as i see on a day-to-day basis um but yeah it's, it's a big pressure and all of us as a team need to look after each other and help each other be the best we can
0: When you were younger, and I listened to the Rage podcast we were saying before, it went for almost three hours, this epic, epic episode, but it was really interesting to hear some of the challenges that you all had as juniors and comparing that to now where you all sit and the people that are coming through now and learning as they go and and how you want to give them a better experience than what you all had. Um, as As a junior in the field, seeing some of those moments where somebody is there in a critical position and then potentially seeing opportunities where there could have been something better done. How did you, how did you process that or get, get your head around that? To, I, I could just see there as being this, this, break, this mental breakdown of going, I, 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 need to, I need to step away from this. This is too much because this life or death situation, literally. Yeah,
1: I had some tough times to be honest. I I can think of so many situations where I just felt at my wits end, I felt mentally exhausted and sometimes physically exhausted, working in a system that did not deliver the best care for patients and certainly didn't deliver the best support for its junior medical staff. Um, And I think it was only really the support of colleagues in a similar position And just having loving friends and family that got me through Hmm. i mean medicine has uh you know one of the highest suicide rates of any profession and sometimes you can feel um like you're the only one in the world trying to cope with some of these pressures but of course it's not not the case Hmm. a lot of us have gone through this i mean i'm old now (laughs) <laughs> and my 50th birthday, birthday a few months ago, which I uh, still can't get my head around. But, um, you know, that means I trained at a time where conditions were a lot worse yep. uh, for medical staff than they are now. And I, I, I really hope that uh, it never goes back to the bad old days of doing 100 hours plus in a week and just being so brutally fatigued and hungry that you can't make sensible decisions. Mm. Um, but... Uh, you know i've seen i've seen people die that could potentially be alive today certainly shouldn't have died when they died Mm. because of an absence of good medical care and it wasn't that the medical care was unavailable it was that the system and sometimes individuals were just unwilling to provide it or didn't appreciate the need or couldn't be asked and I've, i've been on the phone as a junior doctor phoning senior doctors saying i think this patient needs this please can we provide this and they go no no we're not going to do that mm. putting the phone down and then patient dies and you know I can remember the faces of those patients but more importantly I can remember the faces of their children that I've told that daddy's died mm. uh, and lied to them and said there was nothing we could have done knowing that's bullshit I don't lie to people anymore I really mm. don't um, if I think something else could have been done I'd i make that known to the right people mm. I, I wouldn't further distress a family member but fortunately I you know I'm not in a situation where I do witness those gaps in care now. so mm. And if I am, I, I should be sorting those gaps out myself.
0: i definitely develop some resilience where, you know, you you turn those absolutely horrific experiences into something that end, ends up leading to a positive change where you can see the gaps, you can see the things that could have been done that weren't done, and as a result, you've become better and more attentive and aware of situations and then, obviously, as the medical world's improved and practices have improved, and facilities and and, and the personnel as well, then that 's obviously helping helping move in the right direction but um oh i can't even could not even begin to imagine scenarios like that where it 's just you 're right there
1: yeah I mean it, a lot of people are looking for inspiration in their careers, um, which I think is great it's good to have role models but um, I like to point out to some of my trainees that they shouldn't underestimate the power of negative inspiration. So, you know, I became powerfully motivated to kind of do the opposite from what I was mm-hmm. witnessing. Certainly in some of the people that um, were nominally re- responsible for training me or educating me or supporting me, when that didn't happen, I'd try and spot their behavior patterns and then try and model the opposite uh, so I've seen dysfunctional services that don't provide protected time for training and teaching and don't support their staff and, um, and individuals that have those patterns of behavior. And it's actually relatively straightforward to design what you want to happen mm. around the exact opposite of what you've seen not work.
0: And it's interesting because I know I, I, on your Resus website, and you've got a on your blog, crazy! You've got so many articles on there that you've written. Um, but just digging into it, even on the surface, there's a lot of stuff about um, staff care. Obviously, the end result of what you're doing is to provide a service for a patient to make sure that the patient is looked after in the appropriate way. But it all stems back to the people that you work around and making sure that they're cared for first, in order for them to be. Of healthy body and mind to be able to support the patient in the in the end and it's amazing it shouldn't be amazing but it is amazing that a lot of the the key elements are things that are so simple it's the things that going back to what we said before about things that are in control and outside of our control um about kindness and respect um i saw some stuff about mindfulness as well and i i I saw an article that you'd written about um doing picnics as well so varying uh, various forms of picnics whether it be a debrief for sort of an educational purpose or whether it be literally just having a picnic on the on the floor in the emergency room or yeah not, probably not the emergency emergency room but in a room in the hospital just to be able to change the scenery just for a for a moment in time just to get everyone reset mentally but they're, they're simple things like I think people overcomplicate overcomplicate it too much and it's usually those simple soft skills and interpersonal skills that um, are the the difference between whether somebody's looked after and whether they're not
1: yeah i think those human factors are so important and you have to look after your team i remember being inspired uh, when i first read richard branson's autobiography losing my virginity mm. i think he's written a few more since then but um the only, actually the only thing i can remember from that book was he was talking about the difference between Virgin's philosophy and some of its competitors whereas other big businesses would look after their shareholders first then their customers then their staff he would look after his staff first because then they would be happy so then they would do a good job so the customers would buy more stuff mm. the business would do well and then the shareholders would be happy and I I think the same way if I look after my team they're going to make a much better job of looking after patients uh, and that's what we're there for so it's, it's a a better way to achieve our goal, which is looking after patients.
0: And I think just from a from a from the outside looking in, for for me that hopefully we'll never have to use the service whatsoever, but to know that there are people behind the scenes that are taking that approach to making sure that they're all looking after themselves, that's that's a massive confidence booster for somebody on the outside that thinks, well, if in a hopefully an unlikely event that something occurs that I know that I'm gonna have people that are in the best frame of mind and body to be able to provide that, that high standard of care. And I think that's really reassuring to know because I'm, so, many, so many of us work in organizations and it's the same thing about, we're worrying about the product or the customer and we're trying to make them happy but we forget about the people that we actually need to fulfill that, that agreement. And um, and then we scratch our heads wondering why things aren't working or things aren't falling into place or things aren't being delivered at a standard that we expect and and um, yeah it's um, it is a reassuring thing to know especially in something that is so heightened and so so critical
1: yeah it's not rocket science is it no. if, you, if you want to make something you've got to, you've got to have the right tools and if you want people to work hard they've got to be physically and mentally healthy. Um, <laughs> I remember reading, when I was going through a pretty rough time as a trainee, there were two of us working in the same department where we were getting no education. We were working crazy hours where both of us were on the brink of resigning. But the good thing was it was kind of a yin yang relationship because when one of us was on the brink of resigning, the other one was feeling kind of upbeat. So we would reassure them and persuade them to stay. And then it would go the other way. So we kind of looked after each other. Um, And, I remember at that time just trying to find written resources I could read to keep myself motivated. And one of them was Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Nine, People. Yeah. <laughs> and I loved his one about sharpening the saw. And it boils down to uh, it comes back to Abraham Lincoln that said something along the lines of if he had three hours to cut down a tree, he'd spend the first two hours sharpening his saw. Hmm. And uh, in my first job interview for a specialist in emergency medicine. I I tried to quote that and I just got, I got it wrong. I said if I had two hours, three hours to chop down a tree, I'd, I'd spend the first two hours sharpening the tree. <laughs> and, and was waiting for people to kind of nod in agreement and they were just looking really confused and shaking their heads and staring at each other at, and quickly writing things down on their notepads.
0: And I was thinking, oh no, what have I done wrong? <laughs> it's um, <laughs> It, it comes back to what you were saying before about what happens here from a training point of view is that it's better to over-prepare and spend the hours really immersing yourself in scenarios and making sure that you're, you're up to date with everything and refreshed that in that unlikely event of something that ends up, that all that training could lead to a split-second decision and that's all it is. And so for, for people out there might look at it and go, well, there's no point putting in all this training for hours and days and weeks and months or years for something that, you know, from a probability point of view is so unlikely, uh, it's better for my time to put it elsewhere. But that that unlikely moment, even though it might be this minuscule moment in time, uh, it can make all that preparedness worth it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, a great example in the training we do is if the helicopter crashes in water, you know, that's fortunately an exceedingly rare event especially in australia Mm. where safety standards are so high but um yeah every two years we're required to be dunked which means we do helicopter underwater escape training and we've got a dedicated pool here with a wave making machine and simulated darkness and lightning and windy weather and large waves and a helicopter frame that you're strapped in um it gets dropped into the water upside down in the dark you're in a seatbelt. And you've got to safely get yourself out of seatbelt um, past other people. Hopefully they're getting out to get the window open, which is quite hard. You've got to break the window, break the window seal and push it open and then get to the surface and take a gasp of air. Uh, you yeah, know, we have uh, trained divers in the pool in case you, mm. you lose it. Yeah, I um, think that'd be me. <laughs> but that, that pushes all of us close to our limits. Yep. It's pretty scary. Mm. But, yeah, I'd rather have the training than not if I'm l- unlucky enough to go down in the water sometime. And it's the same for how we train for our patients. You know, we we train for the big stuff. There's some pretty gruesome things that are required of us from time to time. They're thankfully rare. But, you know, for example, we might have to do literally life-saving open heart surgery at the roadside. So Mm. you could get someone who's been stabbed in the chest. They're initially okay. The ambulance is cooled. Um, but gradually they become more and more agitated and combative as their brain is starved of oxygen because mm. they're not getting blood to the brain because they're bleeding from somewhere. Um, and then eventually they may have a cardiac arrest. And so often we'll arrive on scene at that key point when someone who's been stabbed in the chest is having a cardiac arrest. They're becoming unconscious. They're losing their, their pulse. And if we don't do anything, then they are 100% dead. Um so we have a strict protocol that we go through to try and treat reversible problems. Now, if the knives hit a major artery and they've just completely bled out, there's not much we can do, although we do carry blood transfusions. But um, if they've got a collapsed lung, then we can make a hole in the chest to release the air from around the lung, mm. um, and that can save a life. So we will immediately do two surgical incisions either side of the chest while someone else is taking control of the airway we'll put the finger into the chest and feel if the lung is coming up and down Um, and that's great if that works but if that doesn't work the next thing is to see if there's blood trapped around the heart that's called pericardial tamponade and that's quite a common reason for dying if you're stabbed in the chest it's completely treatable but the only way to treat it properly is with surgery Mm. so we've made these two holes in the side of the chest to try and release any trapped air from around the lung the patient's not getting better we with literally with a bear, big pair of scissors like the ones you can see in my pocket mm-hmm. here we will cut through those holes all the way to the breastbone the sternum and we'll cut through that bone with the scissors mm. and you can then open up the chest wall like a like a car bonnet um, it literally opens up and it exposes the heart and the lungs in the chest like an anatomy textbook <laughs> and if there's blood trapped in this space around the heart called the pericardial space you see it as the heart looking kind of blue and tense Um, so we'll cut through that pericardial lining we'll get the blood clot out and then we can expose the heart there's a hole in it um, we can put a quick stitch in that or a staple or put our finger on it Um, and if the heart's not beating we'll do internal cardiac massage to get the heart going again Um, and that's been shown to save lives when you send a, a senior doctor paramedic team to the scene of penetrating heart trauma so that's one of the life limb and sight saving surgical procedures that we train for here but they're rare any one doctor doing a one-year term here is probably more likely not to do that procedure than mm. do it but every doctor has to be trained in it every paramedic has to be trained to assist in it in case it needs to be done and we'll do probably four or five of those a year from this base um, so it definitely happens more than enough. <laughs> but, but any one of us has to be mission ready i can tell you about more similar procedures if you you want to go there yeah okay all right um so the other big one um and again it's it's a really confronting emotive horrible scene to be involved in but when you think about the the goal to save lives it's actually quite um an admirable thing to do if you have a pregnant lady who's heavily pregnant so you know you've got a fetus in her womb that's um you know in its last few weeks of growing Mm. before giving birth Um, And something bad happens to that woman where her heart stops. You've now got two patients to save. If you don't get her heart going again, she's dead, but the baby's also dead. Mm. Um, So you've got to try and save the mum. You've got to try and save the baby. Now, sometimes it will become apparent in the first few minutes that mum isn't going to be savable. Imagine she has... She's been hit by a car, has terrible head and chest injuries and has gone into cardiac arrest. We can't fix those things. Um, but there's going to be a few minutes where she's gone but the baby's still alive and we've got to get the baby out. So we essentially have to do a caesarean section on a freshly dead or dying woman outside of the hospital. Could be could be next to a road crash. All right? mm. um, so if you think about... The challenges there. There's the technical challenge of doing the surgical procedure, but there's all the non-technical or human factors challenges of doing one of the most um, gory and horrific and emotive procedures you've ever done when you may have never even seen one done mm. and thinking about all the people around who are going to be affected by seeing that as well um, and having to manage that whole thing, the potential chaos of the scene, looking after everybody else on scene, but your prime responsibilities your patient and and saving that baby um so that's called a resuscitative hysterotomy um or a perimortem cesarean section and that's another thing we train our teams for and you've got to think about how do you train for that you know we don't have dying women volunteering for this obviously i I can't
0: i can't Um, put my hand up to be an actor for that one no
1: exactly (laughs) but um so what we've done is we've invented our own training models where and again the the paramedic assistants who come and help us with this have helped us um design the models you know they'll get a they'll get a little um uh, baby doll from uh from kmart or somewhere for a few bucks and then they'll make get a plastic bag fill it with fluid that's the amniotic fluid then they'll get a bit of a red yoga mat chop that up to make that the the uterus and they'll make various layers of the abdominal wall from easily available things from bunnings or somewhere else created and then mold a pregnant woman's belly uh, put some fake skin around it and then strap that to a live female actress and then we've got a mock bus, so we do this thing where a bus has run over a pregnant woman. And then we'll put our teams through that simulation where um, they'll, they'll have to rescue that woman who initially is alive and screaming. And then she, she acts as though she's no longer breathing. She's gone into cardiac arrest and they have to get the baby out and they've got to cut into her fake belly. Uh, and that's just an attempt to make things as real as possible there's this concept in simulation of fidelity you know the the higher fidelity the simulation the better training the better quality mm. training that is and the more of, more effective it's going to be the more likely you are to actually be able to do that procedure when it counts so we invest so much time and effort and energy into just making training as realistic as possible but it gets gory it gets gruesome um But if you always remind yourself about the end, but what are we trying to do here? We're trying to save Mm. someone's life. We're trying to save someone's baby, save someone's wife, save someone's mother. um, It makes it all worthwhile.
0: It's that separation between obviously the emotional aspect of it, but also any concerns that you might have about what you're seeing as far as people being squeamish or the gory aspect of it and being able to separate that, as you said, and and identify, well, what's the end result? What are we trying to aim for? And just putting that as the the primary focus. But as you said, like being in a situation where you're at a a, a site of an accident on the side of the road or somewhere where there's a lot of distraction and noise and chaos going around, to be able to centre yourself enough to be able to stay on task but manage all these things at the same time. Sometimes a lot of it subconsciously is is a real feat. Uh, I mean, do you to try? I mean, do you have enough people there that you can have people separating spectators, people that can remove them, remove the the public away from what's going on, so they can't see what's happening? It's because it's so quick and instantaneous. You don't have time to set up a little, you know, tent or things to to block block people's view. Um, just so many things to
1: factor in. Yeah, you're right. It's um, a really important part of the training we do is to consider all of those non-clinical or non-technical factors. And so we've got a strong emphasis on that. And early on, we teach people that um, your preparation for the mission doesn't start with the hands on the patient. It starts prior to that when you turn up for work or when you're tasked on a mission. You've got to start going through in a structured way all the things that you're going to have to take control of. Um, so we think about, we use STEP as the word, as the acronym to remind mm-hmm. us of self, team, environment, and then patient. Okay. So with yourself, you've got to have your head in the right space. Um, you've got to be physically prepared and psychologically prepared for the mission. And um, there's a number of steps we can we could talk about how we, how we do that. Then you have to have your team prepared, which means you need a designated team leader, the other people in their team need to know their roles and everyone needs to know what tasks need to be accomplished so that's the sharing of, of a mental model of, of teamwork and of task work and then environment this is a key one that gets left left out in a lot of mm-hmm. medical training um, and I guess it's because in hospital the environment doesn't really change much an operating theater is an operating theater and intensive care is an intensive care but in our field outside of hospital, the environment is always changing. That almost defines us as a specialty of pre-hospital emergency medicine. Uh, wherever you go to, it's going to be somewhere new. It's going to mm-hmm. be unpredictable. And if you don't take control of the environment, the environment will take control of you. And so we break down environmental control into space, light, heat, crowd, and noise mm. that, those that's my little structure yep. breakdown have we got enough space around this patient is there 360 degrees of access to be able to do all of these things that we need to do to them or do we need to move the patient to another location straight away or are there things around the patient like chairs or other paraphernalia that we can move from the patient so let's get space control first is there enough light uh, that's a problem at night but Uh, here um, in this part of the world in the daytime there can be too much light Mm. when you're trying to insert a tube into someone's windpipe a process called intubation you've got to look down into this dark airway with a little torch on the end of a machine called a laryngoscope, if there's bright sunlight in your eyes, you can't see it. It's Mm. impossible. No one in hospital who does this on a daily basis has ever experienced that. But as soon as they try and do it at midday in Sydney outside... Uh, Adds an extra element of panic and stress to a situation. So we have to prepare for that. So it's not a new cognitive load. It's not a new surprise or issue we have to deal with. So there's light uh, and crowd is a key one that you mentioned. It's getting crowd control because you can have a hostile crowd... Or you can have an over-helpful crowd. Oh. Like one of the worst things you can have in a pre-hospital <laughs> mission is doctors on their day off that turn off that oh. want to help. Like it's, it's a disaster. They'll move your kit. They'll try and do stuff to your patient. You go, thanks, mate. You're off duty. I'll take it from here. <laughs> so you, you've got to get crowd control. And the police are fantastic allies in that. And mm. uh, it's something we have to pick up the need for
0: really early and get on top of, or it can go horribly wrong. With um, just, just while that's in my head, with um, police being an ally to, to assist in those situations, I would assume that they would have a level of basic training in situations like that from a medical point of view to be able to be aware of what your needs are, what your requirements are that they can then... So it might not be exactly the same, but having those identifiable aspects of space and crowd and things like that they would have a similar structure that they would they would methodically work through as well to ensure that they're supporting you guys as well yeah, yeah, I
1: imagine that's the case. I don't know how they're trained for it mm. but my experience is universally positive um and often they'll be distracted by other things like traffic control or mm. you know hostile members of the crowd um or preservation of evidence if the patient looks like they're gonna die so they've got a lot on their plate too, and they might not immediately think of our needs as a medical team, but all it takes is communication and you know if we ask them to do something they're they're fantastic and the same with the fire service as Mm. well yeah absolutely invaluable support and um there's a lot of jobs where we couldn't do our job without them
0: yeah yeah definitely um just looking at that helicopter out there and thinking about trying to visualize scenarios what's the most is the most common thing that you guys are going out to probably car accidents in locations that are not nearer a hospital? Is That's that right. probably the, main, the yeah. main one? Yeah. So yeah.
1: a road traffic collision or motor vehicle yeah. accident. Um we do a lot of pre hospital rescue, so patients that might be in a, in a canyon and then they fall over, break their ankle, can't get out. Mm. So we can mm. we have a winch on our helicopters, we can yep. remove them. We can winch people out of the ocean if mm. they're drowning. Um but yeah, bread and butter pre hospital work would be Would be a motor vehicle collision, or a motorcyclist, or a pedestrian hit by a car, but often
0: road traffic related. And how often is it that a helicopter doesn't have a sufficient area to be able to land? Are are you guys getting dropped out of these things, (laughs) military style? I mean, obviously in the ocean, that's what you would need to do. Um, But I mean, are you guys just you know trying to find a space on the road to? I'm just trying to think of like what it would look like visually for some of these scenarios.
1: Yeah, it can be a challenge, particularly with the helicopters that we have because they're, they're multi-role aircraft. <laughs> yeah. So you know, they've also got to get us to Dubbo and back to pick mm. up a patient who might need to come to an intensive care unit in Sydney. So because we do long-range inter-hospital transfer in the same aircraft, mm. uh, they're big and they're powerful. And so you know if they tried to land in someone's backyard they'd be blowing down the shed and mm. causing all kinds of mayhem. <laughs> so that, yeah, they do have to have a decent uh, space to land in. Um, but what's great is the Other people from the ambulance service who are on scene are very highly trained in finding a suitable landing zone. Right, okay. And similarly, the other emergency services are really helpful in facilitating that too, especially the police. So often, um, if we can't land on the road, I mean, we can get the police to close the road and we'll land on the road. Mm. Uh, I went to a mission just last week where we did that. Um, But if we can't do that, often there's a nearby sports oval that provides a great opportunity. And then there's often a police guard to pick up the medical team and equipment from the Mm. aircraft and take them to the scene. Yeah. So it's not not usually a a huge
0: issue. No, okay, yeah. I'm just, uh, when I saw, even uh, leading up to today, and I was thinking about helicopter base, and I'm thinking about just, uh, and I've got, I know nothing about helicopters, but I'm thinking this small, you know, very agile, quick little thing that flies through the air to get to a site really quickly. But I mean, obviously this thing will move and it moves quickly, but um, I was very, very surprised at the size of this thing. And I've I've never been up close and personal to a, a helicopter of that size either so it's just um there's a there's a reality behind it that um is um just it opens up a million questions of oh yeah how you know how do you how do you park these things how do you how do you get them on the ground and and all those types of scenarios and, and especially in an emergency situation and just what you said having the local guys they're already trained to understand that that's one of the checks that they need to do and they need to identify and they already know the area they know where preferred landing spots are so that's yeah that's interesting
1: i think it's an eye-opener for a lot of people because um you know just being a public service the ambulance service doesn't heavily promote itself and why should it it's paid to do a job mm. and it gets on with the job so Uh, The vast majority of members of public you meet don't realize that New South Wales Ambulance provides Highly specialized doctors and critical care paramedics as a team to go to some of these things You know if if you see a news report about one of our missions, it'll just say um, The patient was airlifted by paramedics to hospital Mm. It won't say that uh, you know a critical care team was providing life-saving surgery at the roadside People just don't know what we do Mm. and um, uh, you know, I don't want to blow our own trumpet. I just think it's helpful for the tax-paying public to know what they're getting for
0: their dollars. Oh, definitely. And I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, it's there's this action hero element to it. And, you know, the amount of training and physical and mental durability that you would need to do a job like this, and obviously the expertise and knowledge and years of training. But to see a facility like this and to hear some of those stories, you realize that, while yes we're all just everyday people there's there's a level of extraordinary talent and and a type of person that um, that sits behind behind this part of our lives that we don't that we take for granted and as you said like a scenario like the news where you hear about you know somebody being airlifted you just think oh they've been airlifted and that's it you don't think about all the challenges and all the, the the level of detail and technicality that's involved with it it's it's um it's it's quite it's it is an eye opener. Resuscitation. Now I'm an idiot because when I looked at resuscitation and when I, and I thought you've got a you've got a whole website dedicated to resuscitation. This is incredible, and all I thought about was mouth to mouth. That was just my my knee jerk autopilot reaction was mouth to mouth. But uh, digging even just a little bit more, I could see that there's quite a number of variables around resuscitation. Is there a high level of explaining this in general in terms of what? some of those variables are, because I know it gets quite technical. But, it, I mean, obviously there's mouth-to-mouth, and that's a very basic form of it. But what are some of the other scenarios? Yeah, so I guess to the lay person,
1: when you say the word resuscitation, they'll, ima- they'll imagine someone exactly as to say doing mouth-to-mouth mm. or doing chest compressions, yep. so-called CPR, cardiopulmonary mm. resuscitation. And that is resuscitation. Mm. That's trying to resuscitate someone who's in cardiac arrest. But within medicine resuscitation has a broader meaning which is all the other things you can do to treat cardiac arrest or to prevent cardiac arrest so someone is critically ill or injured it's all the interventions to the airway breathing and circulation Mm. that will buy that patient time and save their life while you treat the underlying cause so yeah if i mention resuscitation to my mum she'll imagine CPR probably mm-hmm. um but resuscitation to me and my colleagues could include anything from intubation so putting a tube in the windpipe giving someone an anesthetic to put them to sleep so they can tolerate having a tube in their windpipe so you can connect their lungs to a ventilator and blow oxygen into their lungs it could involve giving them powerful drugs to support their heart beating faster or stronger um it could mean some of that life-saving surgery i mentioned on a pregnant woman or mm. someone stabbed into the in the heart so it's all of the time critical medical interventions that save lives to me that's resuscitation mm.
0: and i saw a couple of things online about instances where you need to make a distinction very like almost immediately about what your next actions are and i think you alluded to this earlier on when we're chatting um, about whether there is whether it's appropriate to actually follow through with the resuscitation attempt of whatever that might be. And there's a number of different reasons or elements as to why you wouldn't do it versus why you would. And I know that there's requests from family or the person themselves and obviously there's a, there's a lot of legal aspects around that when you can and can't do that. But um, have there been scenarios over the years that you've wanted to do something but you've been forced that you can't and and excluding like the junior stuff of being sort of learning your, learning the ropes but um, moving on further into your career, has there been instances where there's been a certain request or something that um, you probably thought we probably could do something? I guess the the one that springs to mind, it
1: wasn't me but it was managed by a really good friend and colleague of mine, again back in the UK, Was a young patient, but old enough to consent to treatment and refuse treatment. It wasn't a child, but it was a young person who was a Jehovah's Witness, who had major trauma, was bleeding to death, but had declined a blood transfusion. Mm. And she needed blood to save her life. And she declined and um, essentially couldn't get the blood, and she died. And legally, that was the right thing to do. Mm. But ethically, my colleague really struggled with that. Um, he did all the right things at the time. Made sure the patient understood as best she could, in her critically injured condition, what the consequences of her decision would be. Um, you know, he also spoke to other colleagues, hospital management, medical legal advice. Did all the right things, but was just uncomfortable with the final outcome. I've never had to deal with that particular clinical scenario myself, but that's a, that's probably the classic example of where you want to do something but you can't. At the end of the day if a patient is of sound mind um, and understands the consequences of their decision they should be the one to make the decision mm. um but you know in the heat of the moment it can be difficult to conclude that the patient is of sound mind you know if they've got a major injury how clearly are they thinking mm. Um, if you think they might have a mental illness then and they might not have capacity to make the decision, how do you demonstrate that um, in the heat of the moment? Uh, There's not not a lot of time to really sort of analyse. those are major ethical challenges. Essentially, legally, if you're not sure, then you would be expected to do everything you can for your patient that you think is right Mm. and make every effort to get as much information as you can. But... um, with resuscitation when you're about to lose the patient a, a, a sort of safe general approach is shoot first and ask questions later because mm. you can always withdraw care yep. but you can't add it if it's too late. Yep. Yep. So a common um, situation where these things are are evident is in, is in the elderly patient. We have an aging population. We mm. have patients in their 80s and 90s come into our emergency department every day. Some of them are very sick. 20 years ago you'd probably say, oh, look, he's 94, let's just hold him, ha- hold his hand, get his family and keep him comfy. And that's often what the patient wants. Uh, but society is kind of moving away from that. People are wanting more and more interventions and people are living longer and longer. Um, but it still boils down to the same basic um, legal and ethical rights, which is if that patient's of sound mind, if the 94-year-old has a perfectly good brain and says, actually, I'd like a couple of, couple more years with my grandkids. Mm. Can you do everything you can? Uh, then you probably should. Mm. Mm. Um, and usually that's okay. But then you've got other bigger questions, like if you have limited healthcare resources and some of these ex- treatments are getting more and more expensive, what's the most appropriate way to distribute those resources to the population in general? But that's not something for... Do- a doctor to answer in the recess room on a wednesday afternoon you know, that <laughs> that's, that's right. for society and politicians and yep. the legal system to decide and the healthcare system on a, on a wider level is
0: and that's that separation of understanding just what's in front of you at that point in time and what your what your focus is yeah rather than um yeah worrying about some of those bigger bigger questions and yeah. getting distracted by those larger ethical
1: exactly you mustn't get distracted about that you've got a a responsibility for your patient and we have to think about i didn't coin this term but i like it maximally aggressive care which includes maximally aggressive resuscitation like if we need to save their life let's do everything Hmm. um but if you then find after you've got a scan back on your 87 year old that she has an unsurvivable bleed in the brain Hmm. You can still provide maximally aggressive care. You've just changed your treatment goals from resuscitation to palliation, symptom control, comfort provision. Maintaining the comfort and dignity of that patient is now your priority. But you do that passionately with maximal aggression, Mm. if you like. Aggression is maybe not the best word, but right. let's get this patient's family in. Let's make sure she's got enough morphine on board so she's not getting any pain from this. Let's uh, make absolutely certain we've got a side room where it's just not going to be, you know, the dying process is not going to be um, made less dignified by a screaming 18-month-old with a scald from mm. a hot cup of coffee mug you know, in the cubicle next door. Let's do everything we can for this mm-hmm. patient still, but what what's appropriate for this patient now is, is comfort and dignity. And it comes
0: back to what you said. Well, what I've, I've kept referring to because I'm so impressed with it is this chart, and I'll put it in the show notes of this episode where you've got the things that are within our control and outside of our control, and understanding that one of the, in that scenario, the thing that's the, the primary thing that's out of our control is the fact that this person won't survive. And so now you have to look at the things that are within our control, which is the fact that we've got to make that person as comfortable as possible remove distractions remove um i think there was one thing that you had in there like junior staff and like stressed uh people uh, you know um silly things like um for the people around like water and coffee and and respect and kindness and all that kind of stuff but it's they're the they're the they become the critical things that need to be accounted for um rather than the technicalities of trying to save that person you've you've moved away from that
1: yeah healthcare is imperfect um we're lucky in Australia to have such a great system, but it's definitely not perfect. And there are things that aren't great that if you focused on those solely, you'd go nuts and burn out in no time, particularly if you're full time in emergency medicine. But as you say, there are so many things you can do that make a difference. It's not worth worrying about the things you can't influence. How long have you been in Australia for? This time around 10 years. I'm a boomerang pom. So I, <laughs> I came out here to do some training yeah. um, for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, met my wife to be we went back to the uk for five years but she's from sydney okay yeah um and one morning mysteriously 10 years ago we woke up in sydney again i, I still don't know quite how she engineered that but yeah we've we've moved back um we're lucky to have a little boy now who's in school and uh there's really no reason to to go back yeah, to the uk
0: Firmly planted here now
1: definitely yeah. yeah but it's it's not up to me
0: <laughs> you just go with the flow. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, the reason I ask, and just to, and before we wrap it up, I'd, I'm curious just from your experience of working in the UK and working here. Um, it's probably not the distinctive, the, the, sorry, I'll try and spit this out in English. The differences are probably not as vast as what they used to be. But what are some of the main differences that you see between the system here in Australia versus the system in the UK? So the system here has more resources.
1: Yeah. Um, the UK, particularly at the moment, and it definitely wasn't this bad when I left, and it's, it's not the reason I left, um, but the system at the moment in the UK is under so much pressure. There's been um, been less investment, not just in the hospital system, but in all the surrounding support systems like social care, so you, it's harder to get patients out of hospital into nursing mm. homes and other places. So... Um, you know, you have emergency departments in the UK with patients just lining up on trolleys, on stretchers in the ED. It's bulging. There's no hospital bed available to put those patients in, and staff are burning out, leaving in droves. Those guys are having a tough time of it, and they're doing their best. Um, and, and but here we are. We, you know, it's it's not like that. We're busy, um, and it would be nice to have even more resources, but it's nowhere near as stretched as in the UK. That's probably the main difference the other difference as as i see is um there's more of a a public private choice here um the uk public system is nationwide it's the national health system which is great it's amazing what it produces uh for what gets put into it Uh, incredibly dedicated uh, workforce that work above and beyond. Uh, And most people in the UK will just opt for NHS care rather than go to a private hospital. Mm. If they're privately insured, they might have a private operation, but usually if they're seen in a clinic or something else, uh, a greater proportion of UK people will will just stay with the NHS, whereas people here often will elect to see a specialist privately and sooner. Uh, I've got no opinion on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't work in the private system. Everything I do is is public, but Mm. that that just seems to be... um, uh, more acceptance, I guess, or more use of the private system here. Mm. People, people are more inclined to pay for healthcare here in the UK. It, it kind of seems taboo to a lot of people mm. to why would you pay for healthcare? Surely that's a basic human right to have your healthcare provided for free. Um, but other people make the argument that with a growing and ageing population and a limited pool of cash, someone's got to be paying for it somehow. But other countries like Sweden seems to manage it all as part of a public system and have some of the best healthcare outcomes in the world. Mm. If you compare those with the United States, there's a strong argument for the Swedish system. Mm. But, you know, I, I don't know enough or read enough about politics to have a strong opinion on this stuff. Yeah, of course. Just look after the patient in front of me.
0: Just, yeah, focus on one, one person at a time. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to wrap it up. But uh, you mentioned before, um, before we started recording that today you're on call. Um, what does is that a rostered status that you're on for today, as far as being on call, and what what's the rest of your day look like today, as far as being on call?
1: Yeah, so today I'm the duty retrieval consultant on base for the pre-hospital and emergency or pre-hospital and retrieval medicine service. Um, I've got a crack team of other specialists, uh, doctors and paramedics today, so the chances of me having to look after a patient directly are very remote yep. because people at least as good as me I reckon slightly better mm-hmm. will, uh, will be doing that for me uh, but I have to be available for 24 hours for complex missions so then, um, there are various ways of supporting a patient's circulation that involve complicated expensive equipment and other specialists so special kind of pumps that go into the main blood vessel called a balloon pump that will support the heart or something called ECMO which is just amazing um, it's oh. essentially a heart-lung bypass machine. So someone in full cardiac arrest whose heart is, is looking pretty dead can be kept alive by an ECMO machine until you do something about that heart problem.
0: So I'll interrupt really quickly because yeah. um, I've had two people on the podcast previously. One who had a double lung transplant in Brisbane. I'm pretty sure he referenced that machine, yeah, um, and another person, uh, Mick Goddard, who's a photographer um in Sydney and does a lot of music, his son um, and i'm going to absolutely muck this up, but um had a bad heart as a as a newborn, and um, I think for the first however long was um this this machine was being used yeah, that uh, all to, make sense. to help him as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's amazing what this podcast does. I've been introduced right. to this uh, machine yeah. three times now.
1: Well, do watch the ECMO space because, you know, in the example of those patients you mentioned, yeah, ECMO has been used for some years to support major heart and lung surgery. But it's only in the last few years it's been used to treat cardiac arrest And uh, I think it's really important listeners know about this. So, you know, if my heart stops right now, it'll be awkward for you. It's going to be very awkward. Because there's no one else in this room. (laughs) But essentially, my my best hope is that paramedics will come and that my heart is in a state of fibrillation, which means you can treat it with an electric shock. They zap me, my heart goes beating again. They take me to hospital and everyone's happy. But there are other causes of cardiac arrest that don't involve fibrillation where um, there's a few other things paramedics can do um, to try and treat it but if they can't treat it they'll do CPR for me and in the old days if nothing was working for 20 minutes they would say he's dead let's call the family let's let the police know there's a dead body in this room um, and uh, you, you have a slightly shorter podcast
0: might get a few more uh, listeners to it but
1: ECMO has changed <laughs> that game you Yeah. Know, even though in the past I might have been declared dead hmm. I could have had a problem with my heart or another part of my body that's still treatable if somehow you can keep my brain alive. Right. And ECMO can do that. well So ECMO will do the job of the heart and the lungs. What you do is you put in two big hose pipes, essentially, into the main blood vessels, usually in the leg, so into the femoral artery and femoral vein here. And blood will be taken out of my system, pumped around a thing called an oxygenator, and then pumped back in. Um, and will circulate around my body and keep all my vital organs alive. And I could be on that for weeks with no heartbeat and be perfectly alive. Could even wow. be awake. Um, and until I get a heart transplant, or if I've had a fatal, uh, you know, a near fatal poisoning, until the poisons have mm. either been removed by a dialysis machine, or I've just worn off, or my liver and kidneys have had time to, to clear them, or I've had a viral infection in my heart that can take weeks to clear, but will get better if the ECMO keeps me alive. So there are people around the world now who would definitely be dead, even with good traditional resuscitation, if they hadn't had ECMO. And as ECMO becomes more available, um, more and more cardiac arrest patients who would have died will be saved by ECMO. And there are people around the world now with ECMO on ambulances. So in Paris, there's a lovely picture of this being done in, in the Louvre. Of, uh, someone who had a cardiac arrest and the ECMO team goes out plums these big blood vessels the hose pipes go in they put them on the machine and recirculate the blood get that patient to hospital and they can be on ECMO for days or weeks and, until they get better um, it's almost changing our understanding of death uh, and what what is survivable mm. uh, really interesting space so to answer your question about what I'm on call for yeah. <laughs> um if someone requires ECMO in a far corner of the state, we will fly out an ECMO team from St. Vincent's hospital or from the RPA hospital to put that patient on ECMO. And I'll be sent as the senior retrieval consultant or duty retrieval consultant to help coordinate the movement of that patient by helicopter Mm. back to Sydney. So it's the complex retrievals with a lot of, um, a lot of difficult logistics is what I'm on call for.
0: Well, I'm going to let you get back to being on call and, um, yeah i'm i'm absolutely blown away so really impressed with uh with what you do and what this facility does It's is absolutely incredible so i'm i'm happy that i've been given the opportunity to come here and highlight some of this stuff to people that listen yeah i'm happy too thanks for the chance to chat mate sure. awesome. thank you cheers Thanks, everyone. If you want to reach out to Cliff, uh, you can find him on Twitter, at Cliff Reid, C-L-I-F-F-R-E-I-D. Or you can go to Cliff's website, which is resus.me. If you want to make it easy for yourself, you can just go to andysocial.net. Click on the show notes for this episode. I'll have links to uh, all of the things that we spoke about in this episode. Including a couple of book recommendations uh, that Cliff mentioned in our chat. Um, I've got some photos from when I went out and visited the base, which was just so cool. Uh, I'm gushing again. It was amazing. I really, really love that place. It was so, so cool. Um, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. So go over to andysocial.net, go and check that out. Please reach out to Cliff, tweet him or shoot him an email or something like that, and just let him know what you thought of the episode. I'm sure he'll be happy to hear from you. All right, guys, before I wrap it up for this week um as always if you want to support the podcast um if you want me to do a shout out for you at some stage down the track there's a whole range of different ways to support this podcast in addition to just listening to it thank you by the way you can donate shout me a beer via the paypal.me button on the antisocial.net website you just click on shout me a beer And I've explained that in a previous episode, but uh, you can shout me a beer via there, some great beer money and less of my personal money that I spend on this podcast. (laughs) Um, You can also retweet, share, like, do all that social media stuff. You can leave me a review on Facebook or on Apple Podcasts or somewhere else on the internet. And um, actually speaking of Apple Podcasts, I only see the reviews and ratings from Australia. So if you're from the US or you're from the UK or from another part of Europe or Asia and you leave a review on your Apple Podcasts app, there is a high chance that I may not see it because for whatever reason, Apple separates the country regions and we can't see each other. So if you do leave a review on Apple Podcasts in particular, but anywhere else on the internet and you want me to see it, please do a screenshot, flick it through to me and let me know because I'd love to say thank you at the very least, but maybe even do a shout out at some stage on a previous episode previous on an upcoming episode so uh, a massive thank you to everybody that does that um, messages direct messages any sort of encouragement any sort of support goes a long way um, I really really thank you for everything that you guys do and um, I'd be more than happy to return the favour at some stage down the track and also highlight and plug some of the amazing work that you guys do a lot of you guys that listen to this podcast are involved in music various projects you do amazing jobs you help other people you just do incredible things you have incredible stories and I'd love to I'd just love to hear from you so Um, If there's a way that I can repay your support, I certainly will do so. Enough of that. All right, guys. Until next week, thank you so much for the support. Spread the word. Recommend a friend. And until next week, take care. Ta-ta.
1: You're ready. You're ready.